Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking about the meaning of life with guest Michael Roos. When people hear the word philosophy, they tend to think of two things. First, they consider whether a tree falling in the forest makes a sound. For many who don't know the question's context, this is an example of how silly the subject can be. For them, philosophy is navel-gazing and self-indulgence at its worst. It fails because its questions are irrelevant. The second thing people tend to associate with philosophy is questioning the meaning of life. This deeply important exploration is supposed to reveal the most hidden secrets of the universe. Its discovery will quell our anxiety and give us direction. Just being aware of it is enough to turn us into good people, allegedly anyway. Following Plato, these seekers see knowing and acting as the same thing. The problem is that there is such a chaotic diversity of meanings of life that there isn't even a consensus as how to start asking. This time philosophy fails not because the question is too small, but because it's too big. Bertrand Russell puts it this way. A question is only philosophy when it can't be answered. The moment it is, it becomes the purview of physics or biology or some other discipline. Philosophy for him is to be loved for the questions, not the answers. In other words, the search for the meaning of life is not really about the meaning at all. It's about the life. The search is about something to do. We can see this resignation best by looking at one of Russell's most famous conversations. In 1948 on BBC Radio, he debated Frederick Copleston about whether one could prove the existence of God. Copleston was a celebrated historian of philosophy and a Jesuit priest. He believed in both God and God's provability. Russell was a philosopher of mathematics and science, a public intellectual, either an agnostic or an atheist, depending on who you asked. During the debate, Copleston argued that one could offer an adequate explanation for the existence of God. Russell asked for more detail, wondering whether rubbing a match on the box explained the flame. This is the scientist in action. He didn't need to know who was doing it or why. Physics was enough. Surely, Russell thought, this is what Copleston was looking for to explain God's existence. It's what Aristotle called an efficient cause. But Copleston wants more. He explains that Russell's account is only a partial explanation and that, quote, an adequate explanation must ultimately be a total explanation to which nothing further can be added. To prove God, he's claiming, we have to explain God. And to explain God, we have to be complete, all-inclusive, and not leave anything out. But this is just too much for Russell, who retorts that Copleston is looking for something which can't be got and which one ought not to expect to get. Stalemate. To put it another way, the Jesuit priest believes that we can have a full pictures of God's existence that brings with it the meaning of life. But the agnostic thinks the most we can have are scientific reasons without meaning. Any cause has to be narrow and immediate. There is no reconciling these two positions. Either a total explanation is possible or it's not. Today, we're going to continue the search for the meaning of life, once again mired in the debate between science and religion. To do so, we'll go back even farther than Russell Copleston to that moment our guest suggests we first saw the irreconcilable stalemate, the moment when Charles Darwin postulates his theory of natural selection. 
Our guest will argue that evolution takes away the meaning of life that religion gives us. I'll let him explain why. He'll also try to overcome this loss, suggesting that religion doesn't have a monopoly on the answers we seek. Again, I'll leave that bit for later. What's important for our purposes is not to accept Russell's defeat. Philosophy does not have to resign itself to just asking questions and outsourcing the answers it finds. This is not navel-gazing. The search for an explanation is interwoven into our DNA. Does God reflect on past actions, reconsider them, and hope to do better? Not if God is perfect, outside space and time, and complete for all eternity. The human search for meaning is a grasping for betterment, morality, and fulfillment. It doesn't make us good, but it nudges us to alternatives and motivates us to move forward. How can such a quest be either too big or too small? To me, it seems the perfect fit. Obviously, I can't promise we'll discover the meaning of life here today on the radio, but I can say we'll give it our best shot, and we're glad you're joining us, because like the wasted noise once caused by that tree lying on its side in the forest, it would be an immeasurable shame if we uncovered a great truth and no one was around to hear it happen. And now our guest. Michael Roos is the Lucille T. Weckmeister Professor and Director of the History and Philosophy of Science Program at Florida State University. He taught at the University of Guelph for 35 years. He has written or edited close to 50 books. His most recent one is aptly titled A Meaning to Life. Michael, thanks for joining us on Why. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. If you'd like to comment on the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at, at Y Radio Show, one word, or email us at asky at und.edu. You can listen to all of our previous episodes for free and find information about our future shows at yradioshow.org. So, Michael, given everything I said so far, writing a book on the meaning of life seems like quite a burden. It's such a large endeavor. How do you start? How do you attack something that's so... I don't know, overwhelming and ambiguous. Well, um, you know, when I was listening to you as you gave your sort of introductory spiel, I was very much reminded as you were talking about Russell and Copleston of the old joke about a philosopher is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hat, which isn't really there. And a <laughs> theologian is someone who finds it. And I, 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 That's a joke, but it, it, I think it's got a little bit of a barb because almost that's almost the sort of starting point for where I, I'm at. I, I think up until, well, certainly until the scientific revolution or, or later, I think that obviously one wanted to put things in, in the West in a Christian context. I mean, other, other societies like Islam had their way of doing it. But I think anybody, for instance, in the medieval times who didn't try to make some sense of life through the, I mean, in, in the West, through the Catholicism, which was all surrounding, was, you know, was just ignorant and, and not doing their job or, or, or whatever. But I think what happened uh, was during the scientific revolution, I'm talking about from Copernicus in the early 16th century through to Newton in England at the end of the uh, 17th century, I, I think that things started to fall apart, not because these people intended that to happen. I mean, Copernicus wasn't ordained, but he was a minor cleric. And we know that Newton was, was certainly a deist, if not more than that. So these people were almost doing it Margaret Louis in the sense that they started something which they weren't quite able to control. But I, I do think that by the time we get to the 18th century, things are starting to fall apart. There's now, so much that you just said. And I want to back up just a little bit. When we talk about 
the meaning, when we're talking about making sense of life? What do we mean by that? It's, it, it, I, I find the phrase itself to be so many different things. When we're looking for it all, what do we mean? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? And I mean, that's basically where we're at. I think the whole point about being humans is that we do ask these questions. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And although I love my Cairn Terriers very much, I don't think they sit down and worry about the meaning of doghood or anything like that. Whereas obviously, for better or for worse, we people, we humans do. We want to find some sort of meaning to our life. We want to find some purpose to it over and above just as it were, getting through the day. You know, you get up, uh, you have breakfast, you go to work, uh, you come home, the kids are there, and, you know, you end up with a, a, a good romp in bed at the end of the day if you're lucky. Uh, but somehow I think most of us, or many of us, let's put it that way, uh, are, are trying to say, well, is there some purpose to this? Is, does it make sense? Or am I just, as it were, going through the motions and, uh, you know, now I'm doing it before I didn't. And after it's all over, I won't be doing it anymore. Or is there some meaning to this? And of course, as we know, Christianity particularly, and you mentioned Copleston, says, yes, we've got an answer to this. We're the creation of a good God. We're, we're, we humans are special. Uh, you know, we're made in the image of God. He has a purpose for us. Uh, we fell, the original sin, but thanks to the uh, sacrifice on the cross, it's made possible for us uh, to hope for some sort of eternal, what shall I say, bliss with our Creator. I'm not quite sure what the bliss would be. I mean, for me, it would be um, it would be a, a new Mozart opera every night and uh, fish and chips in the intermission. You can hit, tell I'm an Englishman and uh, no papers to mark when I get home. You can tell I'm a professor. But, you know, I'm just joking at one level, but not really. And the whole point is, if things fall apart, as seemed to happen after the scientific revolution, then what the hell? I mean, where do we go from here? Is it, is it, as Camus said, purely, you know, absurd? As Shakespeare put it, you know, life is but a, you know, farce at the struts and frets its hour upon the stage and there is no more. I mean, is, is this all there is to it? Uh, what I want to argue, and I don't think I'm not alone in this, is I think that the 19th century, which saw Darwin's theory of evolution, as it were, kind of revolutionized things. It didn't bring God back in. I mean, Darwin wasn't an atheist. But I think it gave us some kind of uh, way of trying to find a new direction, uh, as it were, post post-scientific revolution, post-enlightenment, which doesn't rely on the old Christian God. I mean, I say the old Christian God, the traditional conception. I, I, I'm stuck between two different things you said. The first thing... You mentioned that life is for eternal bliss, and, and you have this great moment in the book where you talk about how boring the conception of eternal bliss must be if you're there for eternities. Do you change jobs every year just for variety? And it, it makes me think of Mark Twain and Letters on Earth when the devil – Letters from Earth when the devil is talking and he says – the the Christian conception of heaven is so weird. What is it that people love the most? They love having sex. What don't you do in heaven? You have sex. What do they hate the most? Practicing their instrument. What do they do? Play harp all day. It doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> yeah. So so on the one sense, I'm stuck on this eternal bliss idea that if the purpose of life is to reach eternal bliss, then the life we live 
the only meaning is instrumental. There's nothing innately good about it, right? And that seems problematic. At the same time, I'm also struck with this question that someone could come along like Darwin and have a new idea, which of course we'll talk about in a minute, and it'll just pull the carpet out from under everyone. So is part of the issue that that the idea is so fanciful and 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 unappealing that people are looking for another reason that someone can come along because well the first answer wasn't that great to begin with well you know when you're talking about eternal bliss I'm, it it sounds rather like a gary larson cartoon from the far side okay roos you've just finished a thousand years of being a professor now you've got a thousand years of being a lavatory attendant right. uh, begin <laughs> I, I mean i'm not quite sure whether one has lavatory attendants in in heaven whether they whether they're needed but i'll i'll leave that to theologians to discover <laughs> Uh, I think what I want to say, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is even if Christianity, let's say, is true, is life truly meaningful nevertheless? Or are we, as it were, just following the rules, rather like a a jigsaw puzzle that somebody else, namely the great uh, jigsaw puzzler in the sky, has set up for us? And basically, we've got to follow their rules. And we have no choice uh, but to do this ourselves. And I, I, I almost at times ask myself, is this really a meaningful life? Quite apart from the fact that I don't think we should be spending life down here, spending all our time worrying about what's going to happen in the future. I mean, that's like a little bit like Scotch Presbyterians, isn't it? You know, <laughs> don't have any fun now, because if you do, uh, you certainly won't have any fun in the future. Well, And you know. save your money at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> By the way, I I know I'm an Englishman. I did not mean to be that rude about the Scots. I mean, after (laughs) all, David Hume, the greatest English-speaking philosopher ever, was a Scot. And and, and I am an Adam Smith scholar, so I think we've earned the right to make fun of our neighbors in the north. But, but, um, but, But before we get to that moment, in the book you talk about something that I find utterly fascinating, and that is that in the classical and medieval world, there is this notion of the universe as an organism that is a sort of life in itself that has a kind of meaning. And then around the Renaissance and, 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 and leading to the Enlightenment, this root metaphor of what we think the universe as changes to a machine metaphor, that it is, that it is an, you know, a, a, a clockwork, that it is all these other things, and that that takes meaning away because organisms have a life of their own and a purpose of their own, but the machine is just a tool for other people. Why is that shift important and why – and what do we lose when we start thinking of the universe in mechanistic terms as opposed to um, organic terms? Well, th- th- let me begin by stressing uh, that the idea uh, of changing from a, uh, an organism to a machine is certainly not mine. I mean this is something I think pretty standard uh, beliefs now by historians of science. And up through the Middle Ages, there's no question that there was a tendency to think in organic terms. And uh, the world itself and maybe us at some level are part of it. It's almost like the guy hypothesis in a way, that we're all part of this organic whole. I mean, it's certainly there in Plato in the Timaeus, for instance, uh, which was the one dialogue of Plato that was known for many years. So, uh, and it all made sense because 
after all, I mean, you know, you've got winter where it, and then you get spring, which is life, and then you get the summer, which is the flowering, and then, as it were, it gets old uh, through the autumn, and then finally you come to death and winter. You, you particularly know where you live, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, uh, and winter so is constant. So, in a way, yeah. I mean, let's face up to it. In a way, it, it it wasn't silly. I mean, far from being silly, it made a hell of a lot of sense, and also it it gave people a real as it were, way to guide their lives, because then it meant that when the river came in in the spring and and uh, flooded the fields, uh, this wasn't just chance, and it wasn't just something, if I might say, we could just pollute for our own ends, because you know we're 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 messing up Mother Earth, and again when you know digging for minerals and that sort of thing, we it. It, it's ours, but it's ours to to use, not to exploit. And then what happened in the in the uh, scientific revolution was, and I again to a certain extent, I think this was external factors because by the 16th, 17th century, people were starting to make fairly intricate machines. I mean, the obvious one, of course, was the clock. And so many of the metaphors are done in, in terms of the clock. But people started to be very impressed with machines. And so they started to think of the world machine-like. Now, the thing about machines is they do have purposes. A clock is for seeing. A, an automobile is for driving. A, a, a vibrator is, well, you know, we'll leave that one as an exercise for the reader. But the point is they do have ends. But scientists found it wasn't very helpful talking about ends, much better just to focus on the laws themselves and how it works. And so by the 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, a a great historian once said that God becomes a retired engineer. Uh, It doesn't mean to say that you don't believe in God, but it's not bound up in your scientific thinking. And I think that this, as I, as I was talking about, is where we find ourselves in enlightenment in the 18th and going into the 19th century. It's not that people don't believe in God, but increasingly at some sort of level, he, she, it, is starting to seem redundant and, and distant. And, uh, of course, this gives you all sorts of issues about how then how do you relate your life? I mean, uh, let me stress that, as always, and of course I'm a, enough of a historian to know this, there's always cultural factors involved too. And I mean, you take France. I mean, Christianity was bound up with the ancient regime and with the powers that be. And so, in many respects, so often Christianity was seen as something reactionary as well, that it was something which was, dare I say, almost anti life. And so, there was, as we go into the 19th century, almost like a, a boil, if you would. I'm not quite sure that's the metaphor I want to use, but it was waiting to be lanced. And what I want to argue is that Charles Darwin was the guy who came along with a scalpel or whatever it is uh, and and lanced it. And uh, But the point is he didn't just lance it. I think he gave us what should we say, directions for thinking in other ways. I'm not saying it was all all thought out by Darwin himself, but I think he did start this. So what I want to say is where we've got to start is with the fact that we're modified monkeys rather than modified dirt or modified mud. And that's not my joke. That's Thomas Henry Huxley's joke. And so if, if I can put in a, a, a negative plug about my fellow philosophers, and you mentioned Bertrand Russell, I want to argue that in the last century, I think that Anglophone philosophy, by and large, has been completely 
off track because people like Russell said it's all mathematics and that sort of thing. And they were really rather condescending about biology and about evolutionary biology. I mean, when I was at high school uh, in the 1950s, the bright kids did Latin and Greek. The middle kids did math, physics, chemistry and German. And the the late developers did Spanish and woodwork and biology. So biology always had, as it were, a rather down level, you know, rather like sociology in, in universities today. And so I think we've been completely mis- off, off the track. And what we need to do is go back to Darwin and say, OK, we're modified monkeys. Now, what the hell does that mean? And what does it mean for the, the really important philosophical questions like, is there any meaning to life or is it, as Camus said, just absurd? You know, it, 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 it strikes me, it strikes me you, you talk about biology being denigrated and this shift from an organistic view or an organic view of the universe to a mechanic, mechanical view suggests that when we talk about the meaning of life – we're only talking about human life. We've left behind the meaning of a dog's life, the meanings of a tree's life. The organic point of view has room for that, but the the mechanistic view doesn't. And so maybe – and you can tell me what you think about this. Maybe one of the reasons why biology becomes denigrated is that the great shift in values just highlights humanity to such an extent that there's not any interesting – meta questions or larger <laughs> questions about life anymore well now yeah i'm an englishman and i'm not going to take that about dogs as far as i'm <laughs> concerned if, if dogs aren't in heaven if i don't get up there and god doesn't have you know a a, a, a dog lying at his feet or whatever it is or if he isn't holding a, a terrier or something uh, i don't want anything to do with heaven thank you very much <laughs> so uh, i've never had a world where you didn't try to bring dogs into the meaning of it but of course uh, more serious well you can't get more serious than dogs but uh, alternatively, let me put it that way, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think part of the problem has been with Christianity. And I'm not just knocking Christianity. I'd knock Anglophone philosophy as well. Uh, I think part of the problem is just this focus on human beings and not a sufficient thinking about the rest of the world. And of course, you know, today we're suddenly waking up to this and realizing what a mess we've made of things. And so we've got things like global warming and the destruction of the rainforest in the Amazon and God knows what else, you know, all these species going extinct. And suddenly we're saying, Oh my God, have we ever messed that one up? So I, I would agree with you. I would, and I, I really think that a lot of the fault would, I would lay first of all, obviously at Christianity, even though Jesus said, you know, God knows when two sparrows fall. But I'd also lay it at the, at the feet of, of philosophers too. It's only in recent years that philosophers have really started to take seriously issues like animal rights and those sorts of things. I mean, you know, I mean, with all due respect, you don't find this in Plato. You don't find this in Descartes. And I'm damned if you find it in Kant. I don't know. Kant even had a cat, let alone a dog. Uh, <laughs> he, he never so, lived in one place long enough no, to yeah. have his own cat. So I think you put your finger on a very important point that if you don't at some level have a philosophy which tries to 
incorporate the living world in some way. And I don't mean that you have to go back to Gaia and think that the world is living. But I think if you don't have a philosophy which at some level doesn't respond to that, then, you know, you're on the wrong track. We have to take a break. I'll start by reminding all of the long-term listeners that I am a dog lover extraordinaire. And and if I could bring Oscar into the studio, I would, but he'd chew on the cables. Um, But when we get back, we're going to dive into the Darwin question. We're going to look at what Darwin is saying and see the consequences and then follow Michael's train of thought to try to find meaning in an evolutionary universe rather than a religious one. But for the moment, you're listening to Michael Roos and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Michael Roos about the meaning of life and how we find that in the evolutionary age. Before we start the conversation again, I want to make an observation that listening to Michael involves doing one of my favorite things. And the best minds do this, I think. And that is they take the great brushstrokes and they talk about history in a way that connects everything and that, that is on levels of eons and centuries. So the 16th century, and the 19th century, and all of these things happen. And we have these grand historical themes. And then they zoom in to something, something very particular, something very minute, like the root metaphor, or as we shall see, the, the theory of natural selection. And the greatest questions and the greatest examination goes back and forth from this bird's eye view on the highest level to the most detailed work and how those two things relate. Now, there's something similar going on in evolutionary theory, right? Evolutionary theory makes no sense if you look at it moment to moment. Evolutionary theory only makes sense when you look at it beyond millennia and the level of millions of years. But that only has noteworthiness if you look at the individual mutations, the individual changes, the individual characteristics that affect people and animals and life in general, the whole world. And so what's fascinating to me is how the philosophical approach that we're taking is in some sense analogous to the scientific theory that we want to talk about. So, Michael, with that said, can you give us a very basic primer? And you're English, so I will say primer, not primer. <laughs> Can you give us a very basic primer on what natural selection is and why it creates such a problem for religious meaning? 
Well, let me just sort of start with another aside, which is sparked by what you just said, is I'm, I'm 79 years old. Uh, I've been a philosopher now for over 50 years. Here I am in a studio in, in Florida. I'm having more fun <laughs> than I've had in, in a long time. Oh, now, I'm so happy. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm like you. I'm a hell of a lucky guy because I'm doing what I love to do. But I, I think that that's not just a sort of a personal reflection about you and me, Jack. I think that that says something. It says, OK, I, you uh, are people that just like, what was it, Oscar, your dog and Scruffy, my dog. Uh, I think that what I'm interested in is very much, well, why? Why am I like I am? Why am I not a dog? Why is Scruffy not a human? All of these things. And, of course, the thing is, Christianity, to be quite fair, I mean, Christianity tries to answer those sorts of questions. Now, I'm a non-believer. I think Darwinism is tremendously important. So I want to pick up from there. I mean, I and you and our dogs are, are the problem that I want to solve. <laughs> now, how am I going to solve this? Well, of course, I'm going to go to Darwin's theory, as you said, and I'm going to say, well, what does Darwin say? And I think it's fair to divide the question into two. First of all, the overall picture, and uh, we call it evolution now. It used to be called development or uh, descent with modification. First of all, the question is, where do we come from? Not just we, but Oscar and Scruffy and uh, you know the, the eggs we ate this morning and the uh, trees and, and whatever. Where do they all come from? And so... The evolutionist says, well, they weren't created in six days, uh, 6,000 years ago, that they are the end product of a long process of natural, that means non-miraculous development from, as, as Darwin, as people say, from just a few blobs or whatever it is. The, the old phrase used to be from monad to man or something like that, from the, the primitive to the present. So that's, that's the idea of evolution. And it's not a new idea with Darwin. It was certainly there in the 18th centuries. His, his grandfather, Erasmus, for instance, was, was a Darwinian, and, and, and so were others. So that's the one thing. But then the question is, what makes it all tick? What makes it work? And you can go back to the scientific revolution on this. I mean, it wasn't Newton who put the sun at the center. That was Copernicus. It wasn't Newton who made the planets go in ellipses rather than circles. That was Kepler. It wasn't Newton who said uh, cannonballs go in parabolas rather than loop the loop. That was Galileo. But what Newton did was come up with a cause, a, 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 me a mechanism, if you like, and that was gravitational attraction. And what Newton said is, with my cause, I can explain all of this. And this is exactly uh, and deliberately what Darwin is trying to do in his work, particularly in his classic work, The Origin of Species, published in 1859. And Darwin, uh, and I always say Darwin's a great revolutionary, but he's not a rebel, because what he did was draw on ideas in his own culture. And as it were, rather like a kaleidoscope, he brought them all in, twisted them around and made a new story. So on the one hand, Darwin points to the fact 
that organisms aren't just thrown together. They work, they function, what Aristotle called final causes. Of course, this is the basis for one of the classic proofs of the existence of God, the teleological argument or the argument from design. The hand, well, the eye looks like a telescope. Telescopes have telescope designers. Therefore, the eye has an eye designer, namely the great optician in the sky. And Darwin didn't want to get into the great optician, but he accepted the problem completely that organisms aren't just random, they work, they function. But how? Well, Darwin came from agricultural England, and don't forget, he, he's growing up in the first part of the 19th century. We've got an industrial revolution going flat out by the 1830s when Darwin was working. The industrial revolution was mainly the railway. They were putting rails down everywhere. Uh, but if you're going to have an industrial revolution, that means you've got a lot of people living in the cities and very few people living in, in, in rural England. And so you've got to have an agricultural revolution in order to produce food for more people with less people doing it. And they learnt pretty early on that selection is the, is the key. If you want bigger and fatter cows, uh, then breed from bigger and fatter calves and eat the skinny ones early. If you want uh, whatever it is, uh, let's say shaggier sheep, then breed from the shaggy rams and the shaggy ewes and eat the, you know, the, the skimpy ones early. And so Darwin realized that the, the secret to getting design, if you like, was going to be through selection. But how on earth could he get it to work in, in nature? And then he read a, a, a book by a rather conservative, another Anglican priest, incidentally, Thomas Robert Malthus, who was worried about the a population explosion, which had happened in a very big way in the Industrial Revolution by the end of the 18th century. And Malthus was trying to put it all in context. And Malthus said, why do we have this population explosion? Which There's not enough food. Food, not enough space, it leads to what Malthus called struggles for existence. Malthus put it all in religious context. Malthus said, well, you know, God had to have some way of getting us up off our bums and prepared to do things. We can't all be philosophy undergraduates all our lives and depend on others to do everything for us. It won't work. So what God did was make it so that we've got to strive. There's going to be this population explosion. And if you want to succeed, you've got to work and come out top. Darwin read this and said, oh, my goodness. Yeah there's going to be this constant pressure to be the successful one or what the fitter one. And so this led Darwin to the idea of a natural selection, which would be analogous to uh, artificial selection. But the great thing about natural selection was just like artificial selection, it was going to lead to design. Those organisms which had bigger and better eyes tended to do better in the struggle for existence and struggle for reproduction than those organisms which were blind. Those organisms which, you know, were, were speedy or fast or whatever it is, tended to do better. And so what we get is a is an evolution, a development through natural selection over time. It's relative because, you know, sometimes having eyes is not a good thing. If you're living in a cave, uh, eyes are just going to be irritants. But so Darwin recognized that it was relative, that there was no absolute. But at the same time, it, it, 
as I say, it led to design. Now, when I say relative, what about humans? Well, Darwin was a Victorian. I mean, he knew that humans were superior. He didn't know, know that humans were superior. He knew that the English were superior. No question about that. Uh, but so he, he was torn a bit that way. But the whole point about Darwinism is that it is relative. And this takes us back to Oscar and Scruffy, our dogs, is <laughs> a successful dog is, you know, from a biological, from a Darwinian point of view, a hell of a lot more successful than an unsuccessful human. If you spend all your life in a garret doing philosophy without reproducing, from a Darwinian point of view, you're not very good. But if you're Oscar or or, or Scruffy, uh, and you haven't had that unfortunate visit to the vets where you've been neutered, then, you know, life's a ball. Go out and reproduce. So, so, so to, to, to summarize... What's happening is we have these great principles of explanation and, per, and perhaps the most famous one is Newton's notion of gravity. And what gravity does is explain all of the things we knew before, tie it all in with one sort of explanatory principle. What Darwin does is the same thing. By giving us natural selection, he explains what people knew already. But what natural selection does is put the selection ahead of the designer, that the selection becomes how things evolve and how things change. And that, as I understand it, takes God out of the mix because God isn't giving the creatures bigger or smaller eyes depending on where they live. Um, that's just the competition, the selection. And so the great shift is – the role of God in the system because the system operates on itself without – relative to itself without an external mover. Is that you know, the big yeah, move? You know, you put your finger right on the point. I, I said earlier the whole thing about the scientific revolution was the move to machine thinking and God became a retired engineer. But the problem was organisms because organisms seem as if they're designed. The hand and the eye are not just random. And so nobody could see how to get God out of the picture. And I, you're quite right. I mean, Darwin's genius, if we can put it that way, is to show how we can get God out of the picture. That, in other words, to show that we can get organisms by natural laws, machine-like laws, just as much as we can get uh, comets, or rather uh, planets, going in ellipses around the sun. It's, you know, it's the same sort of thing. So that's Darwin's genius. But do notice that retired engineers don't necessarily not exist. And it's very important to note that Darwin's theory – was not atheistic in this sense. Darwin's theory did not, as it were, on the final page, say, and therefore we see that God is dead. Darwin was not a Nietzsche, for instance. Uh, what he did was take it out of the picture. In fact, we know in the origin that Darwin believed in God and the passages which are clearly God-like. But Darwin took God out of the picture. What's, what's interesting and important is towards the end of his life, Darwin did become an agnostic. He never became an atheist. Uh, why did he become an agnostic? Not because of his science. His science made it possible. But like every other good Victorian, I'm thinking of people like George Eliot, the, the novelist, for instance, uh, they 
couldn't hack the theology of Christianity. In particular, Darwin took great exception to the, to the idea of justification by faith, you know, which is central to St. Paul's vision of Christianity. Only through faith can you be saved. And Darwin said, my father and my older brother were both non-believers. Does this mean that they're you know, that they're destined for ever, everlasting hellfire. My father, he said, particularly, was, who was a physician, he said, my father was just the best man I ever knew. And if you tell me that because he didn't believe in God, that means he's going to hell, I don't want any part of that religion. So very interesting, and Darwin wasn't alone in this. It's very interesting. Darwinism does not disprove God doesn't even disprove Christianity. It makes, as Richard Dawkins said, it, it makes it possible to be a fulfilled atheist. You don't have to be. Uh, Joe, Pope John Paul II was, was an evolutionist. He was even a Darwinian, but clearly he, you know, he believed in God. Otherwise, he's the biggest, biggest hypocrite we've ever known until certain people became president of the United States of America. But I won't get into that one, and I know you're going to cut that one out of the talk. But anyhow, so what I'm saying is uh, it's, it's complex, but it's not that complex. Darwin is tremendously important. And I think that Darwin now, once you've got this tool in your hand, you can turn to the sorts of things I was talking about just a few minutes earlier. Why is it that old men like us are having so much, I hope you are, having so much fun having this kind of discussion? So this brings us actually to your project, right? So God is out of the system. And are we in this deep, dark void, right? Uh, if there is no God, anything is possible. Are we without meaning? Are we alone in the universe the way that, that Sartre tells us, full of despair? Or with the Darwinian project, can we find meaning in life still? That's what the book is about. That's what you're working on. How do we begin asking that question? Well, let's be, I mean, Sartre may have talked about despair, but if you look at Sartre's life, and I'm not, I think this is pertinent, his life was anything but despair, wasn't it? Right, right. He spent it was, all his time on the left bank of the Seine, you know, <laughs> smoking and drinking and talking nonstop when he wasn't having sex with Simon de Beauvoir. So, you know, with all due respect, it's one thing to talk about existential despair. It's another thing to actually live it. And I think this is tremendously important. The point I want to make, actually, I call myself an existentialist, but I don't, uh, despair is absolutely the, the last point I'm at. Because I want to say, yeah, if, it's despair if you've got to have a God. If the only answer you're prepared to accept is God and the meaning of life through eternal bliss, then I can offer you nothing, or the Darwinian, my kind of Darwinian, can offer you nothing. And there are people I know who feel exactly that sort of thing. I imagine the philosopher Alvin Plantinga is one who feels that sort of way, and I, I imagine there are, there are others too. But the point is, what I want to say is, if you take that out of the equation, are you then just stuck with life's but a shadow, you know, that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is no more? Are you stuck with life being absurd? And the simple fact of the matter is, we are not. I mean, the point is, Jack, you and I are having a vigorous conversation at, at, at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday. And I don't know about you, but I'm having a hell of a lot of fun doing this. And so 
what I want to say is, okay, let's pull back a moment. Let's leave the despair stuff out of it. I want to interrupt a second because then there are going to be people who say, aha, that's the problem. When you take God away from the equation, what, what meaning becomes is just pleasure. That the fact that we are experiencing pleasure makes us like animals. It makes us egoistic. It, it takes the value away from the project because the value has to be more than just even joy, um, although joy is more complicated than pleasure, that, that the evidence you're using for value is actually the evidence for why the, the deeply religious folks don't want to abandon God. How, how does one respond to that? Well, Jack, let's start with this. I said I'm enjoying myself. I didn't say I was having pleasure. If you think I'm, uh, I'm talking to somebody at North Dakota, isn't a philosopher, <laughs> is having pleasure, <laughs> think again, Buster Brown, think again. <laughs> no, I mean, let, let's, be ser- let, let's be more serious about it. Well, I, I am serious about it. I think that the Christian who says, I mean, I agree with the Christian who says, Life is more than just pleasure. If life is just filling your face with McDonald's hamburgers and that sort of thing, uh, and and so on and so forth, uh, then I I don't think that life is worthy. And I I don't want to keep coming back to the president, but he seems to me to be a man who epitomizes having pleasure, playing golf, you know, girlfriends, all making money, these sorts of things, power trip. I mean, to me, that's pleasure. And I would agree with the Christian right down the line that if life is that, then it's, it's simply not meaningful. But what I want to say is that I think life is more than that, and that I think that part of our evolutionary uh, evolved nature is such that we become, you know, more than just pleasure, and that we have to think about things, and that getting joy out of things is a motivation. I mean, Malthus was right about this. How, how does God, how does natural selection get us up off, 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 off our butts and get us to do things? Well, we don't do it just because there's more McDonald's hamburgers at the end of it. We do it because it's fun, because it's exciting. Uh, uh, why do you play games? Often playing games isn't a hell of a lot of fun, but somehow it's damned exciting because... You, you're, you're in there, you're working with others, you hope to win. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so what I want to say is our evolved nature is such that we can, we do get, what was the word you used? Enjoyment. Let's use the word enjoyment uh, out, out of life. And I would want to say this is very much part and parcel of the evolutionary package, that organisms who, who have that kind of life are going to be more innovative, more work harder, more, think more carefully, all of these sorts of things than somebody who, you know, is happy to have a few hamburgers, watch, you know, watch Fox News and then, you know, a good romp at the end of the day. I mean, you know, okay, we all need that once in a while, but it gets awfully, awfully boring, awfully, awfully quickly. And I think you see this in the development of your children. And particularly, I I would like to say for us as teachers, we see this in the development of our students as we try to 
engage our students and to show them that life is more, and particularly we philosophers, that life is more than just making money, that life is, in fact, something which is exciting, worthwhile, and all of these things. I don't see this as anti-evolution. I don't see this as anti-natural selection. I would say precisely those people who work like that and think like that are precisely the people who leave their mark on society and who, as it were, make for a better society and make for a, a, a more successful Darwinian society. And Darwinian societies aren't just nature red in tooth and claw. They're well-functioning societies. Um, a couple seasons ago, we had a guest who you may know named Valerius Geist, and we had a conversation called Why Did Homo Sapiens Involve Into Artists? And one of the things that he was suggesting is that uh, creative, intellectual, artistic thinking is the product of what we get when we're not under crisis, when we have a moment to think of alternatives. And I think about that because this conversation about pleasure and enjoyment, again, all joking aside – if we get pleasure from this, it's not an animalistic, sensational pleasure. It's the pleasure from, from imaginative, creative, intellectual thinking. And that the fact that we have evolved into creatures that get enjoyment from mental activity is itself some sort of evolutionary product. So you talk a little bit about this in the book. How do you get from this natural selection to the idea that human beings, that one of the values of life and one of the reasons why, why, why we enjoy such things is that creative thinking is an evolutionary value that we can hold on to when we want to have life's meaning. Well, I think the answer is, is, is at least partially this. Humans have taken a certain, let's call it reproductive strategy. Uh, Say, lions, for instance, have taken a certain reproductive strategy too. They're big, they're strong, they're ferocious. I mean, they, the females particularly hunt in packs and all of these sorts of things. And I don't know if lions are particularly successful at the moment, but they, they certainly have been. And let's say the same is true of elephants in their way and so on and so forth. I mean, other, you know, other organisms which are successful, let's say rats, they have their reproductive strategy too. I mean, rats, for instance, are very good at foraging and all of these sorts of things. Also very good at breeding. Well, I, th I would want to say that humans particularly have taken their reproductive strategy. or uh, It's not involved being big and strong and ferocious like that. By and large, even you know, considering Muhammad Ali, we really are patsies when it comes to the lo you know, your local gorilla. I mean, you know, even Muhammad Ali taking on a silverback, we know who's going to win. We're not that fast. Already, my little can terrier at a year old can run a hell of a lot faster than any human being could ever run. So, so what is our reproductive strategy? Well, it, clearly, it's cooperation, and, and it's also being able to think and to be able to plan ahead so that you know, when you reach a situation and it doesn't look very good, you don't give up and say, oh, well, try something else. You say, well, what can we do to, to make it better and that sort of thing. I, now, whether or not creative activity is directly 
related immediately to reproduction or whether it's what Steve Gould would have called an exaptation. It's something which comes out of it. Clearly, creative activity, you know, feeds back into our success. And one of the things, and of course, this is in my book, and I imagine we're going to get to this, is I want to say what I find fascinating about creative activity is how much of it is so very, very human. It's social. It's it, it involves other human beings. And of course, this you and I know as teachers that often the way that you're going to teach children or your students or this sort of thing is through creative works. I mean, through uh, fiction and, and these sorts of things. Even philosophers know this, that if you want to you know, convince somebody of, let's say, sexual relationships and how you should treat each other. Read, read some of the great works of fiction. I mean, and this will start to give you much, you know, really deep insights into human nature. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, even, even the Sopranos. Let's take the Sopranos. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't say even the Sopranos, especially the Sopranos. Isn't that hugely informative? about human nature? Doesn't it tell you an awful lot about people? And doesn't it, for instance, tell you about the insecurities of even the most successful people? So that I think that, I mean, I think we can all learn a hell of a lot from the Sopranos uh, when we see how, you know, the, the Don is clearly a man who's deeply insecure at, at certain sorts of ways. And I think that this can be awfully helpful for us to wrestle with these problems and to be successful. So without wanting to say every last, you know, every copy of Playboy, well, Playboy is perhaps a bad example because it does seem to be uh, reproductive. But let's take something which is, you know, like First Things, the conservative Catholic thing. I don't want to say that every issue of First Things is something which is going to lead to reproduction. But I do think very much that our culture, understood broadly, is, and uh, you know, by this, I would go all the way from art, from theatre to you know, menus, all of these things. I think that this is part of what's being human. And I think at a, at a biological level, uh, it, it's not a surprise that we are this way. Do you end up concluding that there is basically uh, three categories of, of meaning that come from the Darwinian model? You call it family, life and others, and creative activity. Why is that meaning? What, what does that do that, that fills the holes that we lost when we moved to the Darwinian model? Well, I think it, 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 it's a two-part thing, isn't it? Uh, I, what I'm not saying is that it justifies it in the sense of like a proof. What I want to say is we have evolved as family beings. If, I mean, the kind of organisms we are, we've evolved that sort of way. The orangutan, for instance, is not. I mean, the orangutan is like that Dean Martin song, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, the orangutan, you know, male comes in, uh, does his business, and then the female's left to raise the kid. Whereas, of course, humans, I mean, because we have so much development, you, you've got to have males involved, just like the birds have to have males involved. So I see our family nature as something which it comes about through evolution. Now, you might want to say, yes, but does it have any meaning? Does it have any meaning in the Christian sense? Clearly not. Clearly not. But I know what meaning is, and I can distinguish within, as it were, my, my, my life, 
meaningful life and non-meaningful life. I think meaningful is working to come home to look after your children. I mean, to give you an example, I was writing about just this morning. Uh, my, the, I'm an Englishman, so I like to buy loose tea. And I found I can buy, buy loose tea here in Tallahassee from a little Indian store. The Indians who run it are immigrants. They work, I mean, they work seven days a week all the time. But their lives are made meaningful because their children are doing very well at school. And one is about to go off to Georgia Tech uh, to do study engineering. So now you say, say to me, well, what's the meaning? I don't want to put this in meaning in the sense of God is pleased or you know, whether they're Hindus, they're whatever it is, uh, or they're going to have a better incarnation. I want to say here we are right now, and I can distinguish between those people who I think are having a meaningful life and somebody who you know is just a, a, a dick off uh, who does their bit and then watches Fox News or, or dear God, in, in Tallahassee, you know, is obsessed by the football team. Uh, and, and that, I mean, boy, if you want something which is non-meaningful, talk about the FSU football team. Uh, but <laughs> what I'm saying is I think we can make those sorts of distinctions. Now, if you turn to me and say, ah, yes, but that's not. And, of course, there are people who would say that. Alvin Plantinga would say that. All I can say is, well, you're right, but I think you're, the trouble is, I think you're looking for meaning in false premises or false, a, a false, a false picture. You can find meaning in, in this, but it ain't true. So a, a meaning which is based on something which ain't true, to me, is, is a lot less worthy than saying, okay, here we are. This is what I mean by being an existentialist. Here we are. We're thrown into this world. We're thrown into existence. I didn't ask to be exist, but I am. So where do I go from here? Can I find some sense of meaning which within this world? And the answer is absolutely I can. I want to say that, let's say, uh, for me, opera. I mean, I don't mean it's for everybody, but I want to say that going to a great performance, let's say, of Don Giovanni has meaning for me in a way that uh, watching Fox News uh, uh, does not. So I think we can find meaning at that level. If you say to me, ah, oh, yes, but that's not worthy meaning. Well, sorry, friend, that's all I can ask, offer you. But the thing is, I'm offering you a system which is based on a true world picture. And you, if you're a Christian or whatever it is, are offering me a, a, a sense of meaning, which is based on, dare I, I have to say this, a false world picture. And uh, I know which one I prefer. You know, this is, this is tremendously both, I think, profound and, 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 and moving to me. I'm sitting here in the studio, right? We're in, we're, we're in other places. I'm sitting here and I'm wearing a sweatshirt or what the kids now call hoodies, right? I'm wearing a hoodie for, uh, of a band named 21 Pilots. They're a sort of rock pop alternative band that my daughter absolutely loves. <laughs> and I took her to a concert a couple of weeks ago of this band in an arena, and it was one of the most intimate, wonderful performances and experiences I've ever had because I got to share it with my daughter. I like their music. I think they're sophisticated. <laughs> I think they're interesting. But as I was actually talking to her about it last night, my experience of the band is intertwined with my emotions for her. And there's nothing in this world that has more meaning and is more important to me than my relationship with my daughter, other than, I guess, my daughter's health and survival and happiness. So 
the idea that someone would look at the relationship that I have with this music and with this band and with my daughter and say that it has no meaning is perverse. But all of those explanations are explanations that don't involve God or God's love or anything. You can create – you can say, well, God created the universe that created 21 Pilots or whatever. But what you seem to be arguing and what I find tremendously moving is that because we evolved into family animals, that the meaning that we find in our family is both real and true and the product of natural selection, and we don't need external validation for that because the meaning that we feel for it is enough. Well, uh, you know, you're learning very well. I, I'm <laughs> going to give you at least an A on this. I think that be my one first. or two pieces that may need correction for you to get an A plus. But you're getting, you know, you're getting very good. I do think you're bringing up one thing. I might sound like the most god awful snob, who, and they may say, "Well, that's already okay for English Englishmen." But I live in North Dakota, where you know we we're people, practical people, blah blah blah. I'm not, I mean, I, you said about your daughter and the music. I'm certainly not saying that for your daughter or for you or for anybody that these things can't be meaningful. I mean, I'm not a jazz fan, but I know people whom I respect hugely who are jazz fans uh, for whom this sort of jazz can be deeply meaningful. I mean, I, you know, I happen to like reading sh detective stories. Uh, are they meaningful or not? Well, some of them aren't, but every now and then, of course, you do hit a, on a detective story, and you, you, I mean, and you say, "Boy, this is this is more." I mean, Raymond Chandler would be right. a case in point where uh, you say, "Boy, this man has really deep insights into human nature, and it it transcends." just, as it were, you know, <laughs> uh, finding the lowest common denominator and doing that. So uh, please understand, I'm, I, I am a snob, but I'm not a total snob. <laughs> but And I actually don't think anyone would have thought that. And I don't think that anyone used the opera example as, as, as normative or, or as, as what everyone else should do. I mean, you're talking about Raymond Chandler. I'm a huge fan of Robert Parker, who's the inheritor of the Chandler legacy. And his early work, there's there's a book called Early Autumn, which is, as far as I'm concerned, right, it's a detective. It's a sort of, it's a genre piece. And it is one of the best works of unexistentialism I've ever read and has a, had a profound effect on my life. So I think what everyone understands you're saying is that there is a subjectivity in the choices that we make and we can value and find meaning in the things that we choose or that appeal to us. But here's the philosophical move. The fact that we are choosing to find the, the meaning in it does not make the meaning subjective and worthless. It just may make it, I don't know, idiosyncratic, relative yeah. – Right. As the word you used earlier, is, the, is this fair that, that part of what you're trying to do is to preserve the objectivity of meaning, even if we get to choose that, that well, the content? That, that's a good, good way of putting it. I wonder, though, whether it's not a question of so much of objective versus subjective as relative versus non-relative. I mean, I don't know what your position is on ethics. But I'm certainly an, a, I'm in a, favor a moral non-realist. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe in platonic forms or God's right. will. I think that ethics at some level is, does not have 
that kind of meta, what we philosophers call that kind of meta-ethical foundation. But I'm, I'm about as far from being a relativist as a human being could possibly be. I mean, you know, I'm really a stuffy old fart, honestly. I mean, I really, uh, I don't even cheat on my income tax, for God's <laughs> sakes. I mean, really, I, mean, I really don't. <laughs> and, I, you know, so I'm anything but a relativist. If it feels good, then it is okay. You know, the, the sort of stuff we were supposed to believe in the 60s, although I lived through the 60s, and I happen to know that kids then were about as far from being relativists as it's possible to be. We spent all our time arguing about sex and how you should treat each other and about the Vietnam War and that sort of thing. We were about as far from being relativists as possible for human beings to be. So the distinction I want to draw is not so much objective-subjective, but relative-non-relative. Whether or not your emotion that you've got you know, with your with your daughter, whether it exists in some sense, you know, like the tree which makes a sound you know, when it falls when there's no one around in the forest. Uh, I don't know. And I don't really care. What I do care is I think that the kind of emotion that you talked about is something of great value, of huge value. And it's worthwhile in the sense that let's say, a pedophile, you know, their emotions would not be. So I want to say, yes, I can draw these distinctions, but my, my distinction is less objective-subjective and more relative-non-relative. And I want to say that there are that you can be a subjectivist or a moral non-realist or whatever you want to call us and yet be about as far from relativism. I mean, let's face up to it, Kant you know, in his funny way, was a moral non-realist. And boy, if ever somebody was not a relativist, it was Immanuel Kant with his categorical imperative. So, you know, that's how I would put it. So I want to preserve completely and utterly the worth of your your experience with your daughter. I mean, you know, it brings tears to my eyes because if we're lucky, we've all had that. And of course, it makes it even more worthwhile because we know what hard work it can be raising children otherwise, whether they're small kids whose diapers have to be changed or whether they're teenagers who, you know, who rebel against you or whether they're kids of my children's age who ring up and say, Dad, I can't make ends meet this week or this month. Uh, so we all know the, the costs, but the point is what makes it so worthwhile are those transcendent moments. And they're not if you're lucky, they're not that rare, where I want to say they're of great worth, but in, in, they're not relativistic. They, they really do have meaning, even if there's, if there's no God, if there's, you know, we're all non-realists at that sort of level. So there, there were a whole bunch of technical terms in there that I think a lot of our listeners yeah, I was a bit worried about that whether I was, but that's that's okay. And and I think that and I think that uh, you know we have listeners of various different uh, philosophical experiences, and if you didn't know what those terms were at home, don't worry about it too much. Here's the gist of of the distinction: the subjective, objective, relative, non-relative distinction. Here's the basic point, at least as I understand it, and then you can tell me if I've gone astray. That. Even though meaning 
is my choice and relative to me. My experience with my daughter is relative to me because it's not she's not someone else's daughter and someone else isn't going to have that same connection to her. So it's Jack's world, Jack's universe, Jack's mind that it wouldn't be Sally's or 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 or, or Ahmed's or someone like that, right? So it's relative to me, but it's not um but it but that doesn't mean it's worthless because it's not connected to the world. It is powerful and meaningful and real in all of the senses of the world. And so even though it comes from my perspective and my universe, it still has all the moral power of thou shalt not kill or God is great because my universe and my meaning has as much power as anything else because it's meaningful for me. And all of the other stuff, the external rooting, can it apply to the great principles of philosophy? All of that is secondary justification to the experience of being in the world and the meaning that I have. Is that a fair I, I, account? Absolutely right, Jack. I, I must say, uh, when I use the word metaethical, I thought to myself, oh my God, <laughs> I'm doing everything that Jack, in a long letter to me before this started, <laughs> said, what you do not do is mention metaethical or eschatological or, or, or Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, there are certain things we do not talk about on this book. And I said, oh my God, I, I, I'm talking about metaethics. So you're absolutely right. What I want to say, I mean, I think it, it's, the, it's the tree falling in the forest. It, does the tree make objective noise in the forest when there's no one around? I don't know. I don't think you can answer that question. I don't know if, if, as we philosophers like to say, whether it's even a, a meaningful question. But uh, so that to me is what I'm, I'm saying I don't want any part of. But the point is, if the tree falls on me or if I hear the tree, then, of course, it, it, it may be subjective or relative to me. Uh, I hear the tree uh, and somebody who's deaf does not hear the tree. But it doesn't mean to say my hearing the tree is, you know, it's, if, it, if you hear the tree, it's OK. I mean, there are certain rules within my subjective world that tree falling makes and certain sounds that, that are indicative of what's happening. I want to um, – we don't have too much more time, but I want to ask a question that I think relates to this that, that, that helps us see this debate in a different context. And, and, and it's as follows and it's something you talk about in the book and it's this idea of progress. When we look at evolution, we see a movement from single-cell organisms to complex creatures. We have a sense of – the superiority of human beings over dogs and paramecia and other such things that at one point was part of what, what some philosophers would call the great chain of being. And there was an inherent uh, not just betterness about the complexity but also – a moral betterness, a value betterness, just a superiority in general. And we call that, after the 18th century, we call that progress. And so the question I have that I think helps sort of explain the, 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 the more subtle debate that we're, or discussion that we're having is when you talk about evolutionary uh, movement, forward moving, and even the word forward is problematic, evolutionary change – can you use the word progress and does evolution 
tell us that what comes later is better? Or is progress a moral term that we impose on it and misleads us into thinking there is a reason, a designer, what, again, a technical term, a teleology, a purpose, a goal to all of this is. Um, How does the word progress relate to evolution? And is that a way to find meaning in the system or is that a red herring? Well, again, you've asked a really good question. And of course, I try to deal with it in the book. The, The fact is that evolutionists up to Darwin were all progressionists. They all thought that evolution was a progress, as I say, from the blob up to the human. I use the phrase monad to man, but it's not mine. Uh, And then after that, Darwin's theory seems to be relativistic. I mean, what works is what works. Is it better to be, I mean, take human skin color. Is it better to be uh, white or is it better to be black? Well, it's pretty clear that it depends. Nobody's quite sure why, that in certain parts of the world, it's better. I mean, biologically, it's better to be white. And in other parts of the world, biologically, it's better to be black. I mean, And I, this is not social political. This is in no, terms I'm of dealing talking, with the sun talk, and, and environment and things like that. Right. In those terms, yeah. you know that. No. Yeah. Uh, so the point is, it, it is relativistic. Nevertheless, the tug of progress is very, very strong. And not only did Darwin believe in progress, but a lot of today's evolutionists do. I mean, Edward O. Wilson, who's probably the, you know, the most distinguished of them all, is committed to progress. Of all people, Richard Dawkins believes in progress. But of course, he's an Englishman, he would. But you know what I mean? I mean, so I, I want to say it, it, it's there. And it's very difficult not to think in terms of progress. But I honestly think that if you're going to try to ferret out the right way of thinking, you sh- let me just put it this way. I think you should be very wary about progress. I mean, I'm not against progress as such. I mean, clearly, I think, for instance, that today's motor cars, automobiles, are better than automobiles even when I was young, for instance. I mean, you've got automatic uh, gears and all, all of those things. I mean, when I was young, you didn't have heating in sidecars. Boy, that makes a big difference. So, I mean, I, I do th- believe in socioeconomic progress, whether there's biological progress. Clearly, at some level, certain organisms are better at doing certain things than others. And so if you're talking in that kind of relativistic way, I don't think there's any doubt that you can talk in terms of progress at that sort of level. But I, I be, I'm very uncomfortable about talking in progress in absolute terms because the trouble is then you start, you get into the game of justifying what's going on by it being the most you know, advanced. And you, know, you get right into what we, I don't want to talk about and say, oh, well, you know, Europeans have progressed beyond Africans and therefore they're superior or, or words to that effect. I mean, you know, I want to say that's the kind of discussion I don't want to get into. Or conversely, we now know that Europeans carry Neanderthal genes and Africans don't. I mean, it's a joke, but I don't want to say, oh, well, that shows that human, uh, Europeans aren't superior to blacks after, uh, or african Africans. No, Africans. Don't talk about Africa. Uh, after all, I don't want to even get into that kind of conversation at that sort of level. I, I think that that's, that's not where we're at. And you'll notice that the kind of meaning to life that I'm after is not one that depends on progress in that way. I want to say the kind of meaning to life I'm after 
is one that deals with the here and now. I don't care, Jack, whether you've got an IQ of 180 as opposed to an IQ of 120. I mean, either way, I think the relationship and that experience with your daughter was something which was deeply meaningful in its own right. And I, I just don't want to say that, therefore, you know, because you're a superior being, that justifies it. I'm not justifying it, at least not in that way. I'm, I'm much more of a naturalist. I'm saying this is the way it is. So 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 that that leads to a question that I didn't know I had but I think is a really important one which is for the Christians meaning is a synonym for good but there are people who will impose the idea of progress on evolution who will claim european superiority who will look at the history of colonialism in england and say oh this this, this is this is why england is special or american exceptionalism is is an analogous version of that and find meaning in all of this and it's what many of us would consider both false and immoral meaning so the question is is the term meaning as you use it a synonym for the term good or is it or can you have bad meaning immoral meaning destructive meaning is meaning neutral in some sense that is relative to the context and the moral value is a separate question well clearly I, that's a good that is a good point and isn't it interesting with this I mean this is what makes philosophy so great is you come in with a set of ideas and you leave the discussion with with more questions than you came in with <laughs> uh, no I mean I'm quite serious about that I mean I always say that good philosophy you solve the problem by lunchtime except you don't and you've got two more problems by the end of the day but I mean I, I obviously I'm using meaning at some sense with synonymous with being good. I'm clearly saying that your kind of experience with your daughter is worth way more than just sitting at home with a couple of beers uh, uh, watching Fox News or something like that. I'm saying it might, you know, every now and then everybody wants to relax. I'm not saying it's a bad thing as such, but it sure as hell doesn't have the meaning that your experience with your daughter had. And obviously, at some level, for me, that's a loaded, that's at least as I'm using meaning in this sense, that's a loaded sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about meaning with a capital with a capital M. I mean, obviously, if I talk about what does this word mean, if I use this word, what do I... I mean, I'm not necessarily got any value component in it at all. I mean, I, you know, if I'm using a word, uh, like a word like Fortnite, which North Americans don't use, but the Brits do. If well, it's you a video game me, now, so kids use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you say to me, what's the meaning of Fortnite? And I say, well, it's two weeks. There's no value thing in that. But obviously, I'm using the word meaning, as I say, with a capital M. And I want to say you're relationship with your daughter or that experience was meaningful. And what I want to say ultimately as a Darwinian existentialist is I think it is possible to have meaningful lives with a capital M without God with, and without trying to slip it in surreptitiously with sort of what I would say is false hopes or beliefs in progress. I think it, you, you've got to deal with it as we've evolved as we are. I think this is a great place to stop in part because we have to, but also in part because it leaves a lot of questions on the table. And I hope that you'll be willing to come back and continue this conversation, including just about the nature of meaning separate from evolution. And of course, 
you've got 50 plus books and we'll find other things to talk about. <laughs> so, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on why this was a fascinating and really compelling conversation. Well, thank you very much, too. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, this has been meaningful. I mean, we've I've had a lot, a lot of fun and you, too. And it's been enjoyable. It's not just pleasure, because I really think we've been functioning as as human beings, as I say, with capital M. OK, you have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Michael Roos on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. And I will be back with a few closing thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Michael Roos about evolution. You know, evolution is such a loaded term right now. There's all this politics about should it be taught and do the candidates believe in evolution? And this idea that Darwin was a boogeyman is fairly old, right? The Scopes monkey trial comes to mind. Evolution has always been a symbol for the loss of religion, the loss of God, the loss of meaning. And certainly, as Michael tells us, we lose a bunch of those things. But is life under an evolutionary model still meaningful? Well, Michael's second answer is look at your own life. We're evolutionary creatures. It's true. Does your life have meaning? Clearly it does. The first answer, the philosophical answer is, well, Let's follow the path and let's see that evolutionary, we become people who value life, who value family, friends and others, and creative activities. And these sorts of things that can be explained purely in evolutionary terms and purely internally within the system absolutely positively have meaning. What do we mean by meaning? It means that life is worth living when we do those things, that life is better, that we are happier, healthier, more important creatures when we engage in those things. There are people, as Michael points out, who say, without God, none of that makes any sense. But except for those people, I think the rest of us can say, that's not a bad answer. Family, friends and others, and creative activity. If in the end that is what I did, I think I can say I made the world a better place. And if I made the world a better place and I had a good time doing it and I loved, to use the Christian term, doing it and loved while doing it, that's not a bad thing and I'd be happy with that kind of meaning in my life. This has been Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, 
in the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. 